Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest this week is a celebrated historian and the award-winning author, co-author, or editor of more than 30 books. Most of these works are focused on American presidents or people we know because of presidents. Doug Brinkley is the Catherine Sonoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University, a CNN presidential historian, and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Professor Brinkley, welcome to Words Matter. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Doug, let's start first with really what a presidential historian is. How do you look at a president? How do you get in the room? We have so many guests here that are in the room at various parts of the government, but you can't do that as a historian. What do you rely on? What uh, materials, what documents to get a sense of a presidency, a president, and what their impact is? Well, I grew up in Ohio, and uh, one of our bragging rights, we call the state the mother of presidents. So when I was a kid growing up, we would visit things like, you know, the birthplace of of Ulysses S. Grant or Rutherford B. Hayes' home in Fremont or the grave of William McKinley. And uh, I got interested in presidential history. And um, there really is not a degree, like if anybody wants to go to college and major in presidential history, it doesn't exist. But there, over the years, have become some interesting programs, particularly the Miller Center at the University of Virginia that does oral histories of, of more recent presidencies. But due to the cable television, cable news, this idea that uh, we desperately need somebody to put current presidents into a framework of our past has become a bit of a robust business. So people like Doris Kearns Goodwin, Michael Beschkloss, John Meacham, myself, really write books about presidents, and we try to create public discourse on them. You know, no matter where we are in America, people live where by presidents. We call it the Kennedy years or the Johnson years or the Nixon era, you know. And so there was a, a vast interest. In other words, there's no regionalism involved when you're dealing with the president. It affects the whole country. And lastly, Franklin D. Roosevelt created the first presidential library when he deeded his home in Hyde Park on the Hudson as an archive for his papers. And then we did retro, creating one for Herbert Hoover. But every president since Hoover now has a presidential library with an archive working with the federal government to make it a special depository. I go visit those places for a living. If you're going to write a book on Bill Clinton, you go to the presidential library in Little Rock. First off, you read anything and everything you can about a particular president. If you're going to write a a book on Zachary Taylor, you go back and try to read any document that we have related to Zachary Taylor, which means just a lot of reading. You get all books of that era. You look at military history, and then you track Zachary Taylor's life. The late historian Stephen Ambrose once told me that you abandon chronology at your own peril. 
as a historian, meaning, you know, Zachary Taylor lived week by week by week and get that chronology down first and then try to, if you're dealing with Taylor as president, not military figure, start trying to tick-tock what he did every day, where he was at, where meetings were held. And back then it was called, the, the White House was called the Executive Mansion and find out how he made decisions and who was visiting with him and did they have letters from that period and try to just absorb as much material as possible. But alas, we, we're, we can't put ourselves back in the room. We can only read newspaper accounts or eyewitness testimonies and, and follow the documentary evidence. The late Paul H. Nitza, a famous Cold War thinker, also once told me the problem with history is that you're never writing about inaction. You're always looking at documents that push narratives forward, but often presidents define themselves on what they don't do. And you don't go to a presidential library to see what a president didn't do under glass. And it's a told me that's highly undervalued, that really often a president can define him, him or eventually herself by decisions they didn't make. So it's often said that journalism is the first draft of history. So presumably you're taking notes on the current presidency. Give us your impressions. Well, it's not a good story, Donald Trump. It's going to end very badly for him in the historical sweepstakes. I say that with as a nonpartisan person at heart, meaning, you know, I've edited Nancy Reagan gave me Ronald Reagan's diaries and I edited them and Jimmy Carter gave me his diaries and I did a book on them. And I can go on and on about how I try to really look at the presidency as an institution But what Donald Trump is doing is dividing our country. And the number one thing a president needs is to have an ability to unite. And he plays politics by division. That never fares well in history. But after we had Barack Obama, our first African-American president, you know, there is a kind of arc of history where you have to move the bar forward. You have to take a deal with progress and into the future, into the mid-21st century. And, and President Trump has taken things backwards, almost seemingly back to the Jim Crow era where, you know, there was a there there was a feeling of kind of white America had a, a supremacy over dark skinned people. This is retrograde. You know, yes, it we've seen this in George Wallace or Strom Thurmond and their movements where this has happened, but we never had a president of the United States ripping us backwards that much. Uh, except oddly Woodrow Wilson on race, um, he took things backwards from where Theodore Roosevelt had creating discriminatory policies in the federal government during his presidency. So, you know, Trump's not going to look good. Will he be ranked as low as Buchanan, who's on the bottom? Maybe. I think, though, if if President Trump is a very serious political figure if he gets reelected. When you become a two-term president and have a 95% approval rating in the Republican Party, you would have to say Trump is the Republican Party. And we'll have to analyze what this new kind of economic populism mixed with nativism and xenophobia really is. Doug, I want to drill down on that point just a moment while we're talking about Trump in the context of your wealth of knowledge and experience with the men that came before him. So 
As we tried to make sense of the news that's happened just this past week and cut through all of the noise, a unifying theme came out of it. And from the trade with China to the stock market to the aftermath of the El Paso and Dayton shootings to the U.S. endorsing Israel's travel ban on members of Congress and even the death of Jeffrey Epstein in a federal prison, it was the power and consequences of the president's words written and spoken that became the common theme. And the power of the presidency is really the power of persuasion. And you said recently that Donald Trump long ago decided that he was going to try to be the president who divided and conquered to intimidate friend and foe alike. So explain a little bit how large a departure Trump's use of presidential power, presidential persuasion, is from the 43 other men who've held that office in the last 230 years. Well, you know, after Donald Trump got elected and he was starting to think about his inauguration, I got to spend some time talking to him down at Mar-a-Lago. I worked for CNN and a friend of mine said, would you like to talk to the incoming president, but just keep it on inaugurations? And my time with President Trump or then President-elect Trump, he was very um, brazen and boastful that he didn't read history. He didn't care about it. He basically said, that's my my thing, that I, I'm a gut player. And he did say that he, he started in his lifetime, watched presidents carefully on television. And so his thinking about presidential history might really begins with Richard Nixon, who I think is his touchstone figure. You know, if you make the leap that President Trump has a narcissistic personality, that fact that, and he had told me this, uh, but it's true, uh, that Trump got a letter from Richard Nixon saying, my wife Pat saw you on the Phil Donahue show and said you were the best she's ever seen and you're going to be president someday. And after Trump got that letter, he would go out and dine with Nixon in New York City. And, you know, you get stuck in a certain period of time. And what with the we, we all thought, I think historians thought, due to the embarrassment of Nixon and the resignation, that Nixon was gone, dead from American politics, that the Republican Party was the party of Reagan. But lo and behold, the dirty tricks, the uh, silent majority, the dividing, pitting Americans against each other, the keeping of just a squad of of loyalists, um, the way that Nixon did with Haldeman and Ehrlichman, you see Trump doing that, particularly with fellow family members, uh, the, the similarities are very large, and that's because Nixon showed respect to Trump he re, and, and bragged about him, and that had a big impact. And remember, Nixon won in 1968, the most tumultuous year, and uh, a kind of a high watermark of the 60s, and Nixon won and beat the counterculture, beat the liberals, beat the civil rights activists. And then in 1972, Nixon goes back and wins the biggest landslide in American history over McGovern. And just as Trump is now making the Democratic Party about the squad, that's the real Democratic Party, Nixon said Democrats are for acid amnesty and abortion. And, you know, it became a demonizing the Democratic Party as far left socialist. Nixon did it and got the biggest landslide in 72. And Trump is taking that as part of his playbook. The difference is Nixon had Spiro Agnew to be his pit bull and would unleash Agnew on the press and others where Trump's assumed the Agnew role himself. 
and so he doesn't have he has a mute vice president in in Pence and so he plays that kind of you know I'll rip your throat out role with great zeal all on his own Hey, Doug, let me follow up on that a little bit, because it seems to me there's another big difference between Nixon and Trump. You talked about Trump's disdain for history. Nixon did understand the history of the country and had a specific worldview and I think thought deeply about particularly foreign policy. Is my assumption true here? And isn't that also missing in Trump? It is missing in Trump. I would have to say, and I've I'm not written a lot about Nixon and I've edited two fat volumes of the Nixon tapes. Nixon was anti-Semitic and had a racist global viewpoint, but he did always put the United States of America ahead of Richard Nixon. He was a patriot, uh, Nixon, in a real sense, and he was a global statesperson. He really understood the Cold War dynamics of his time. He was a deep reader. His hero was Winston Churchill. He practically memorized Churchill's volumes about the Second World War. And uh, Nixon was one of our brighter presidents in the sense of policy, uh, law, history, So that is a big difference. And also Nixon had the wherewithal to recognize, well, I could cash in my chips and do a big thing for history. Nixon, for example, was a ardent anti-communist. He built his reputation in the McCarthy era as that. So it did shock people that as president, Nixon would go to China in 1972 and do the big big uh, breakthrough. But because he had been such an anti-communist, it allowed him to do the China event. President Trump easily right now could lead the nation on gun control and do something. He has public opinion on his side. It would be bipartisan. It would be good for electoral politics. But this inability, this fear he gets of crossing his so-called base makes him a very one-dimensional president while Nixon had multiple dimensions. Doug, you talk about speaking with Trump as he prepared for inauguration, and I wanted to go back and ask you about that. American presidents have usually been optimists. Roosevelt, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, Kennedy, Reagan, and we just had President Obama. How does Trump's American carnage speech that presumably he was preparing, or at least his speechwriters were when you met with him at Mar-a-Lago, compare with Reagan's Morning in America or JFK's New Frontier? Well, what he was worried about at that time was being um, brief. And I told him about William Henry Harrison giving his inauguration, which was, you know, well, the longest in American history. And he later died of pneumonia one month later because of the cold he caught giving his inauguration. And Trump said, I want it to be really, I want my inauguration to be very short and brief. People today don't have the attention span. I got the feeling he was thinking about it as a television event in the sense of stagecraft. Reagan and other presidents certainly have thought in those terms, but Trump kind of took a darker message. He continued with his campaign litany of woes about the United States, and the American carnage is just a terrible written line. It's, you know, and then when, when somebody studied presidential speech writing, it, that whole paragraph got really dark and very bungled, and it'll be known as the American carnage speech in history. It was not a good inaugural address. It was failed. I mean, but, you know, considering if you go back and read it, it's teleprompter Donald Trump. 
It's not Twitter and freelancing Trump where the insulting of people's intellects and, and ethnicity come pouring through, but it'll be seen as one of the worst, if not the worst, inaugural dress in U.S. history. When you dig into presidential history and presidents, it doesn't take long to figure out that all presidents don't always tell the truth. But have we ever seen anything like Donald Trump and his problem with veracity in any other president? No. Look, famously, when Jimmy Carter ran in 1976, he was running on, I never tell a lie. I am ju- I'm honest, unlike Nixon and unlike Johnson. You know, I'm a truth teller and I've never tell a lie. Well, his reporter came to Plains, Georgia to meet Jimmy Carter's mother, Ms. Lillian. And Ms. Lillian welcomed her in the little town of Plains and said, you know, how are you? Would you like some lemonade? You look so beautiful. It was very flattering to the reporter. And the reporter dug in and said, your son is going around saying he's never told a lie. As his mother, are you going to tell me your boy never told a lie? And Miss Lillian said, oh, well, Jimmy tells white lies all the time, but he's not a liar. And the reporter said, well, well, you're splitting hairs. Isn't a white lie a lie? What's the difference? Give me an idea what a white lie is. Ms. Lillian said, remember when I said welcome to Plains and how wonderful it was to see you? Well, that's a white lie. Presidents tell white lies all the time, exaggerate their records. Politicians do that. But Donald Trump has a record of just lying as the gasoline in his tank. He's a fabricator extraordinaire, and that blurs fact and fiction. It gives us no sense of reality. I guess that's the point of a reality TV star. Reality TV isn't real. It's cameras in the room and lighting and take twos, but we call it reality television. And he's very much decided to run his presidency as if it's one great big reality TV show because that's the industry he was successful in. And he, when you don't read, you don't care about history, you just start doing, you know, and what you are reading now, what he does read is coming out of his, his, the right. He's just reading their propaganda and, and then echoing it as president. So we're not finding the kind of leadership in the sense of, we, you guys were asking me about optimism. Most presidents use optimism as their oxygen. I mean, the ones that I write about, Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and Ronald Reagan and Kennedy, Bill Clinton. I mean, uh, everything's about optimism. And Trump, it's all just about himself and using fear as a vehicle, even just recently, he said, if I'm not reelected, even if you don't like me, if you don't reelect me, the whole economy is going to go to hell in a handbasket. It's going to crash soon as I leave. You know, it's constantly convincing people to get behind him out of fear. And that's why I don't believe he's going to fare well in history, because fear mongers never do. You know, it's not just the president. It's all the institutions around the president and the presidency. It seems to me that a lot of damage is being done to institutions. The Department of Justice has become politicized. The intelligence community has become politicized. Just last week, there was a report out about the state, the political appointees at the State Department abusing uh, career foreign service officers and and civil servants and, you know, a mass exodus of the experts. Is this an anomaly or or is Trump inflicting long-term damage on our government? 
I think Trump is inflicting long-term damage. The question is how long that will be. The reason being that it used to be in American history, the greatest honor would be to serve in government, to you know work for the State Department or in recent manifestation, the CIA or NSC or NASA. People don't want to do it now. It's not worth it because you take so much less money than you do in the private sector. So example, I just wrote a book about Kennedy and going the moonshot, and I'm talking to a lot of young people that want to be astronauts. Many want to go work with Musk and Bezos in a private sector in space because some of the federal government pays so low and you get harassed so much. And so we may, we're getting a brain drain out of government. A lot of the, and then other people are using it. All right, you know what? I'll go into Washington one year, get a credential that I was an assistant secretary of something, and then I'll get out to make money. And so that whole idea of public service has been lost. I think the good news, if I may be the optimist, is I think our country's main indicators are very strong. I, I believe still in the American people. Our colleges and universities are excellent. Our research and development continues. Our economy is doing pretty well. But the broken downness of Washington we hear about comes out in polls. I mean, we when I just wrote about John F. Kennedy operating on a 70% approval rating in the early 60s. You have a president now that is operating at 40% approval. And add to that fact that Congress has a lower approval rating than them. About 15, only 15% of the American people have trust in Congress. The failure of our country now is we've told people that the federal government is corrupt. They're out to get you. They're out to take your money. And this has been promoted on right-wing talk radio since the 1980s and beyond. There's been a massive sense of deregulation, that regulations aren't good. And so you're seeing uh, venerable institutions. Next year will be 50 years of the Environmental Protection Agency. And they can't get their story out of EPA of how they're keeping our air and water clean because they're just being gutted nonstop. The Interior Department, which is supposed to be preserving places for scenic beauty, is suddenly now looking to how we can make money just leasing out lands and undoing national monuments like at Bears Ear in Utah. So we're in a place where we have a, a Trump administration that actually treats government as the enemy. And that's why it was not a shock that Donald Trump doesn't want Congress people going to Israel. He feels like a dictator. He can pick up the phone and ban people. And and you're now watching somebody with no historical bona fides working on dictatorial principles. He's really looking at the world as a kind of a, a, a way as a, a right-wing dictator. He admires leaders in China and North, North Korea more than he does leaders in Germany and Spain. Doug, something happened this week that I want to get your take on from an historical perspective, both what happened and our response to it. The president retweeted a conspiracy theory suggesting that the Clintons had something to do with Jeffrey Epstein's death. And the response to that was a lot of pearl clutching and surprise by the left, including my favorite constitutional law professor, Neil Kotyal, who said the fact that a president would do that is, quote, unfathomable. Uh, And a lot of people jumped on that 
and responded saying that's ridiculous, including Jamil Smith, who is a reporter, and responded saying, you know, I don't understand why you could say that's unfathomable. Quote, surprise is easily the most quixotic emotion of the Trump era. And he went on to talk about presidents in history, saying, quote, some have been slavers, others paved the way for civil war, another a trail of tears, one invented weapons of mass destruction while leaving a city to drown. So retweeting a conspiracy theory fits in saying it's fathomable. And we just had Keith Boykin on earlier this month who said Trump is just a part of a long trend stoking fears of white identity politics and and maybe even in the historical context and not that much of an outlier looking at the way that some of our presidents have handled it. So I want to ask you um, how unique this actually this moment was for Trump in the context of the men that came before him, but also the response, the pearl clutching, the surprise, the oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. How unique was that? We like to think that in in modern times, there's a ex-president's club. I mean, we don't have a House of Lords in the United States like the UK does. And so when a president leaves office, there's this notion that they try to stay friendly with the other presidents. And this has been a a kind of a more recent tradition that's been very noble. I mean, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford became great friends. Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush, extremely close. Because just like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams used to just beat up on each other when they ran for the presidency, in later years, they became friends. And their correspondence between Adams and Jefferson is almost part of the American canon of literature. But what Adams and Jefferson were doing is saying we've got to remind people that uh, in America, even after once the election's over, we honor each other even though we have some political differences. So following that Adams-Jefferson lesson, well, most presidents have adhered to that. There are often some dips in it like FDR got petty, not allowing the Boulder Dam to be named the Hoover Dam to punish Herbert Hoover. Ronald Reagan didn't invite Jimmy Carter for the unveiling of his portrait in the White House. You know, there are these really stark moments, but that's different. A snub is different than accusing a former president of being part of a of the Epstein scheme and somehow was part of a murder of a of an American. I mean, that's just so beyond the pale. And you use the word unfathomable that it, there's nothing to compare such an ugly thing to. And he tried to hide behind, well, it's just a retweet, which shows cowardice on President Trump's part, uh, that he would use that as his fig leaf. So are we shocked? You know, I, I was shocked when he said that Barack Obama had bugged his, him in, in the Trump Tower. But once and, – and I was shocked when he said Obama wasn't born in the United States and created – or be, at least became the leader of the birther movement. So nothing that President Trump does that's um, – of this nature is shocking. We still have to fight back. When he does that, we have to call it, as historians, an, an aberration. He seems unable to – honor American traditions and of, you know, of civility and nobility, decency. 
Um, and instead, it is constantly on this um, focus on himself in winning, and that and you once you win, you rub it in the face of the people you beat, and that's we don't consider that sportsmanship in the United States. There's not a college football game where that's acceptable, or a high school game. Coaches don't do that. They hug each other and become friends right after the game. But Trump isn't part of that tradition. The narcissism is clinical and its inability to feel empathy or try to have uh, make bonds and friendships with people that disagree with them. Doug, speaking of traditions, we, we have a tradition enshrined in our Constitution that the president shouldn't use his office to make money for himself. Has there ever been someone like Trump who's, who's used his office to enrich himself? Not to this degree. I mean, we're dealing with a billionaire who won't show his taxes, and we don't know what he does with the money. It's part of the generation of outsourcing and foreign bank accounts and the like. So it's at this point a mystery. I couldn't write a book on Donald Trump's financial uh, as, as president. And presidents do proffer from being president. Uh, the big perks in recent years have been speakers' fees and book advances. And we've become accustomed to that. We have a billionaire president who has been working through the casino culture of money and is a New Yorker who has learned how to um, find ways to get things done in, in a very unusual and circumspect ways. Uh, it hasn't been proven illegal, his business practices in the big sense yet. Um, but it's a worry of mine that um, that Trump is trying to use this presidency to enrich himself. But I can I prove that he's doing that? No. I want to bring you back to where we started with some questions about how uh, the work of presidential historians uh, is evolving. Uh, I imagine this is the first uh, president that one of the richest treasures for a historian will be his Twitter. Can you talk about that? Well, there's no question about that. And actually, you know, if you think in older terms, like university presses will do the, you know, multiple volume, the tweets of Donald Trump. Um, you follow his tweet history and you have quite a story, it, particularly if you annotate that and explain what was happening in America that elicited that kind of response from him. Um, so this is a primary source document, the tweets. Uh, historians are going to be pondering, I mean, what is the tweet official government policy or is it just a personal viewpoint. And just like a lot of law around social media is unclear, this becomes unclear. For example, if Ronald Reagan kept a daily diary, he hand wrote it and kept it in his drawer, uh, you know, in his sock drawer. Um, and that was his. And, you know, Bill Clinton would talk to historian Taylor Branch and they would make some tapes, talk about what was happening. But those were kind of kept private at that time. They, they weren't meant to be dictating policy. They were ways in Reagan and Clinton's case to kind of debrief and, and, and remember things down the line. Uh, what Trump is doing with Twitter is just just it explodes daily and it's running American policy. Yet he often cops out and says, well, it was just a retweet or no, nah, it's just my social media side. It's not my real presidential side. And this allows him to get away with uh, a lot of reckless language in dark inferences. We live in such a polarized society right now where it's tribal where 
the president, when he says I could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and nothing would happen, is certainly true with his supporters. There's nothing he can do wrong. And and journalism has divided, you know, into uh, uh, partisan sides. How do historians uh, like yourself and future historians avoid this partisan divide? Are, are we at risk of 20, 30 years from now having two history books written on everything, one from the right, one from the left? No, that is a very good question. And the answer is I'm afraid that's where we're at now. Uh, Donald Trump is such a figure, you're either with him or against him. And if you're critical of him, um, then you're not part of the movement. You see, Trump's really about a whole new revolutionary movement taking hold in America. And they don't want people that are in the center. They, 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 there's like a line drawn and you have to, are you pro-Trump or are you against Trump? And if you try to be objective, it won't work because if you're being objective, you would have to call out the thousands of lies. And then if somebody asks you, so you're saying Donald Trump is a liar, you'd have to say, yes, he does it so often. And that means you're criticizing him and you're not part of their, their movement. So they've made it almost impossible for this generation. Now, with that said, I've always believed in public history and in in, in historians and academicians being engaged in their time, uh, not being just ivory tower figures. But really, we can't judge a president for at least 25 years after they live office in the real sense. Uh, because that's when the Freedom of Information Act kicks in and documents start getting declassified and you'll have a revisionism of, of, of a particular president. The most famous one in recent years is people thought Dwight D. Eisenhower was you know, playing golf and had heart problems and delegated things to people like Nixon and John Foster Dulles. And, but when all of his archives opened up, we saw a much more hands-on Eisenhower than anybody supposed. He was on top of all the the policy issues with great uh, detail and minutia. And so it made us rethink Eisenhower. And now Ike is ranked in the top, he's, I think, number seven in the most recent C-SPAN poll of, of presidents, but he's a top 10 one when he wasn't. Now, Harry Truman left office with the 27% approval rating. And today we rank him number five, usually. Um, so there is this sense of historical revisionism once documentation comes comes out. And so many academic historians try to avoid the waters right now, uh, shark-infested Trump waters, and instead focus on the 19th century, focus on the early 20th century. But invariably, and historians are human beings, and while at best we try to be judicial and be judges, be fair, pretend like you're in a, in a court of law the way you write and operate, we all come with things as, as biases. Uh, I have a great bias for protecting of the environment. I grew up with a trailer visiting national parks and conservation environmentalism means a lot to me. So I naturally like it when I see a president working to improve the national park system or add national monuments. And that that will seep into a biography of mine that I think that's a accomplishment. But, you know, Nixon created the EPA and he didn't think of it as an accomplishment. He thought of it as something he had to hold his nose and do. And I interviewed William Ruckelshaus, the first head of the EPA, about that. So, um, But to me, that's Nixon's great thing that he did was create the EPA. So however you f- do things, we're only – we, we do carry 
biases in, in our thinking as historians as much as journalists do also. Doug, Justice Ginsburg famously says and has said more so recently in response to questions about the Trump administration that when the pendulum of history swings, it always swings back and just wait. Uh, Do you think that's right or do you think this is the new normal in America or do you think the pendulum will swing back after 2020 or 2024? That's the big question we all have to see. I mean, basically, that's the Arthur Schlesinger Jr. theory that he would say it goes in like 20-year intervals. It'll turn center left, then center right, then center left, and then sometimes it'll go far left, and then people react and it goes far right. But it always kind of gets back to the center by the policies, and they get trimmed down a little, and then we're operating in a center zone. That's an upbeat way of looking at what's happening right now. The big fear that Trump is propagating is one of immigration. After the progress we've made on civil rights, and we've moved forward so far in this realm to see things go backwards to the degree that it is now where white supremacy is on the rise, that hate groups due to social media are communicating with each other. I do feel we're in a, an era of new, uh, a new menace and that the Schlesinger-Ginsburg theory made sense when it was a Democratic and Republican party. I don't know. I think we're in the Trump party which is basically a third-party movement in the sense that these ideas that Trump propagates, conspiracy theories, McCarthyite tactics, demonization of people of color, this kind of thing has always been there in American history, but in recent decades, it's been coming out of the Strom Thurmond Dixiecrat Party or maybe Ross Perot running anti-NAFTA. And Trump's formed a kind of idea ball, which is the lowest part of American thinking, in my view, this idea that the Statue of Liberty is limiting, that immigration needs to be for um, white immigrants. As the president said, can't we get more people from Sweden and less from asshole countries um, that have um, a constituency that's poor or brown skin? That's a problem if this sort of – because that starts becoming a kind of neo-fascism and we haven't had that in the United States except for people like Joe McCarthy who was a senator, not a president, and he was put down by the leader of his own party, Dwight Eisenhower. I don't see Republicans – Going after Trumpism, who are these senators that are challenging Trumpism? They're afraid. And that is something that's different. The Senate used to be a place for lions that if Trump got out of hand, three senators would on the right would stand against him. But with the death of John McCain and Lindsey Graham uh, worrying about his own political futures and personal needs, uh, there really isn't a culture of rebellion within the Republican Party. So whatever Trump does has to – he meets with largely an amen chorus. Doug, let me finish with one last question, and it, it's – I think the neo-fascism brought it to mind. If you were a betting man, what do you think the odds are that we will see a third term for Donald Trump? We will not see a third term for Donald Trump. He's not going to be able to undo constitutional amendment. And I'm not sure you're going to see a second term for Donald Trump. He has very low public uh, approval rating right now overall. Uh, I think many people gave Trump a test ride, kind of wanted to see what it was like. 
And um, while they like some parts of it, the the dividing of our country is starting to really anger people in my view. Hillary Clinton had, had beat him by three million votes. Granted, it's New York, California, and it wasn't a strategy for the Electoral College. But Trump barely won in Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, barely. Has he really improved since then? People like him more in those states than they did four years ago when he wasn't Washington. Uh, I'm not convinced of that. Um, so it's going to be one, another one of these nail-biting elections just due to our electoral college math. And it'll depend a lot on who the Democrats put up. But if Trump becomes a one-term president, he's an aberration, an asterisk in American history. Um, this odd guy with no public service record, a billionaire who was a reality TV star, became president and wrecked a lot of havoc on the world. If he gets reelected, he's a major figure in American history. Um, he becomes not an aberration, but is a sign of where America in the mid-21st century is at, where it thinks. And um, that's why this election, I know we all say they matter. This one's really an important election in 2020. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that. We really appreciate you taking time to walk us through Trump and where he stands uh, among the presidents. We hope you'll join us again. And you have an open invitation now to be on the 25th anniversary of Words Matter podcast uh, with 25 years uh, of perspective on Donald Trump. Katie and I will be here and we'll anxiously <laughs> await to hear your judgment. I'll be here too. I'll have a cane and... And I'll be half blind, but I will be on the show. Doug, thank you for joining us. We enjoyed it. Thank you. Joe, so great to hear from Professor Brinkley and to put our current political situation into historical context. What's your big takeaway from that interview? I think it was the the last bit where he talked about this, the consequences of this election. Uh, I, I tend to agree that this is an asterisk presidency, an anomaly. It'll take a long time to recover from it if it's one term. If it's two terms, this means that this is a, a movement and, as uh, Professor Brinkley said, uh, a significant historical figure in our country's history. And that's frightening um, to me personally. Uh, and I also think it gets at the 2020 election and some of the Democrats. While he may not be the best messenger at times, former Vice President Biden has the strongest message, which is this is a fight for the soul of our country. We cannot survive four more years of Donald Trump and be the country we think we are. Coming from a presidential historian, it's pretty powerful. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, we touched on briefly in the interview, was the, the retweet of the conspiracy theory about the Clintons. I'm sure you have a thought or two about this. I do, too, but wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, listen, you know, it's the most common phrase I keep hearing uh, when it comes to Trump is shocked but not surprised. So, yes, shocked that, you know, the president of the United States would, using Twitter, accuse a former president of the United States of murdering very high-profile sex offender. Surprised? No, because, you know, this is Donald Trump. And the reaction was what you'd expect it to. Everyone on the right came to his defense and everybody on the left uh, attacked him. 
Joe, another moment I wanted to ask you about from last week was at uh, Donald Trump's rally, another one of his uh, infamous rallies. Uh, And this time it was in New Hampshire where he attempted to fat shame a protester who was removed from the hall by security. Uh, And even Fox News cut away as the protesters were escorted from the hall. Uh, And then we learned uh, that the president called and apologized the next day, having learned that the man that he was referring to was actually a supporter. Was this a new low or was this just more of the same? I I think it's just more of the same. Donald Trump, in his heart, believes that anyone who opposes him is subhuman. He kind of starts from the assumption that black and brown people uh, oppose him and are subhuman and that most women oppose him. And he's got a misogynistic view Uh, of women. But it it expands to others. If someone is uh, not good looking or unappealing, uh, he's gone after women for that. And in this particular case, here's a guy who was being helped out and he had no reason to acknowledge him in any way. But uh, of course, he has to insult him because in his mind, this was someone who was a protester who's being forced to leave. And if he's a protester, that makes him the enemy. One of the points that I think Professor Brinkley made so well at the beginning of this conversation, when he talked about almost all presidents believe that their job is to bring people together. Uh, Donald Trump believes his job is to separate people into two camps and to just hope like hell that his camp provides enough support so he can continue governing and and, and get reelected. Whether that's true or not, we're going to find out. We'll see. And finally, Joe, our last question. Uh, While economics and finance are not really our focus generally, uh, there seems to be more of an indicator that there's an economic slowdown coming, even a recession on the horizon. And you couple that with the civil unrest in China and President Trump could be facing challenges he has so far avoided. How up to the task do you think he is to deal with a weakening economy and serious international turmoil? I think we've talked in the past about how uh, the president's been lucky that a very complex international or domestic issue um, has not arisen to the crisis level where presidential leadership was necessary to bring the U.S. and the world through it. And I, I worry very much about where we're going now. We have things going on between India and Pakistan and Kashmir We have a very delicate situation in China and Hong Kong. Uh, We already know the president has blundered his way through part of that, but with reports saying that he privately assured President Xi that uh, he would not criticize him. The presidents don't do that. You have to be sophisticated and nuanced in these things, and he has limited our ability to put any sort of pressure, whether public or private, on on the Chinese government to help resolve that issue. And you take the economy last, I think what the president doesn't understand is how the world capital markets work, which is he's trying to drive the Chinese economy into the ground with these tariffs. What he doesn't understand is that's contagious. That will drive Southeast Asia's economy into the ground, which will spread to broader Asia, which will spread around the world and eventually to the U.S., Our economies are interdependent on each other. Trade is good if it's done right for everyone. And I don't think he has a clue what he's doing with the tariffs. And I think probably just as importantly, I don't think he's surrounded by people who have a clue to how to deal with one of these complex financial events. 
All right, Joe. Well, thanks for letting us know what's on your mind this week and the great interview with Professor Brinkley. Until next week. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.